All right, welcome back to another installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop Podcast. I'm Ryan Miller. And I'm Brad Carlson. And Brad, today we've got a special guest on. It's a it's going to be a first time ever, so introducing to our audience uh, a soil scientist and researcher uh, at the University of Minnesota, uh, Jeff Strock. Welcome, Jeff. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks, Brad. It's great to be with you. And, uh, and Jeff is actually a, a kind of stationed, I guess, is at the, probably the term to use, stationed at the uh, Southwest Research and Outreach Center in Lamberton. And I have to admit, it's been a couple of years since I've been down to the, the research station there. So uh, probably should carve out some time this summer to, to make a trip over and see one of your field days. Doors are always open when the lights are on, so you're welcome anytime. I actually, I probably should should volunteer to to help uh, uh, Bruce do a little uh, corn rootworm uh, uh, root rating or something like that. Uh, don't tell him I said that though. I don't want to be committed to anything. But my lips are sealed. I volunteered to go down and shoot pheasants with him, but that hasn't happened yet. You know, well, we could get into the whole pheasant discussion, Bradley, but I'll tell you, the cover was so bad because of the drought this year. Uh, it, it made things difficult, and then that, that first snow that we had, it was it was not good. Um, yeah, it, it, it was a tough year, tough, tough year for birds. So actually, uh, kind of interesting you guys started with that discussion. Uh, uh, Brad, you and Jeff kind of have a longer history with one another outside of just working at, uh, at the same uh, University of Minnesota. We actually do. We were undergraduates together at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. Uh, and uh, not, only, not only that, but we actually lived in the same dorm. And not only that... Jeff was actually my RA on my uh, on my floor, and so wow. we've got all kinds of embarrassing stories we can tell about each other that we probably won't. But it's of great uh, great curiosity, I suppose, to the listeners uh, uh, that the uh, the world is a small place, and you just keep running into people that that you know uh, throughout your lifetime, and this is a good example of that. Yeah, the small world phenomena, you know, and uh, not to date myself here, but. Both you guys have kids in college, probably, don't you? And yep. do they still have yes. RAs? Is that a thing still, or they they call them uh, community advisors now? Yes, that oh. yes, that's correct. It's I think they use CA is is the yep. is that instead of RA. Yeah. Yep. But, uh, at least yep. uh, I don't know. It probably there probably are plenty of schools that still use the term RA. I don't know. Serving the same function. Yeah, pretty much. Well, uh, so so kind of changing back. So you guys went to the same school as undergraduates. Were you in the same kind of research or research program, uh, educational program? Is there? You were at Stout or no, wait, Stevens Point. Not Stout, Stevens Point. Point. Sorry. Yep. Yep. No, we 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 actually were. Um, uh, I I was actually uh, when I started out, I was a, a watershed management uh, major, and actually I double majored. So uh, I had to add a, uh, as a watershed management major, I had to add a, a minor. And one of those minors was the area of soils. And with my major, all I had to do was really add two classes and I'd have a double major. So I added the two soils classes, I double majored. And and that actually uh, was was a great thing because that's where my, my career really has kind of landed and taken off. and. And uh, as as we'll we'll get into a little later on, I'm sure you know water water has been the theme. So I haven't lost the the watershed part of it or the water aspect of it, but um, just from a from a soils perspective, for sure. 
Yeah, the program there is kind of was kind of small, at least when we were there. I, I think, Jeff, they were only putting out maybe six, eight uh, sales majors a year. Uh, the, a, a larger emphasis was on that, that watershed and water resources program. The uh, sales program was all part of that. The uh, interesting thing at Stevens Point that we experienced there was that the soils program was part of their College of Natural Resources. It was not part of a College of Agriculture. They didn't do a lot of other things related to agriculture there, which I always viewed that as being really beneficial in my career because it uh, really gave me a, a wide uh, breadth of, of understanding of soils as a resource that when I got to the University of Minnesota in graduate school, which was, of course, part of the College of Agriculture there, and I minored in agronomy. I, I certainly got all the ag parts, and I grew up, uh, you know, on a farm and coming from an ag area. So I kind of had that anyway. Uh, so it's an interesting perspective. And and uh, at Stevens Point, at least at that time, when you majored in soil science or any of the areas that were part of the College of Natural Resources, one you had to take. Uh, some base introductory level courses in every one of the disciplines that the college had. So it kind of required that you did some forestry and wildlife management and fisheries and some other things like that, which were kind of interesting. But the other thing is we were also required to do a summer session in northern Wisconsin at uh, at uh, their northern campus called Tree Haven by Tomahawk uh, that had uh, some applied uh, field work uh, in it. It was, was also quite fascinating. We were all uh, assigned a, a small portion of property that we both uh, had to go and find it. Uh, they showed it to us on a map and we had to be able to actually uh, orienteer ourselves out and delineate the property boundaries. And then we had to do all of our, our coursework out there. We did uh, timber cruising for, for trees. We did wildlife surveys. And then we also on the soil side, uh, we did soil mapping, uh, produced a soil map of our property too. So it, it, uh, it, it was a very interesting and resource-based uh, type of education. Yeah, you know, I, I just would add one little tidbit to what Brad said uh, that kind of, you know, distilling everything down that he just talked about really kind of lands on that Brad and I really from the start had a very, very broad, holistic kind of an approach uh, foundation for when we started our, uh, our undergraduate work that, you know, clearly for both of us, I think, has really... Uh, you know, helped us uh, in our careers as we've moved through uh, and both landed here in Minnesota. Of course, Brad alluded to, you know, he's a he's a native Minnesotan. I'm a transplant from that uh, great state to the east, uh, Wisconsin. So. So that's that's interesting, though, both uh, both of you guys, soil science uh, uh, people, you know, soil scientists kind of outnumbered here today, two to one. But uh, uh, and uh, have this kind of background where you started and now you're at the same current employer and and uh, both kind of working on water related issues and 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 research more in your case and Brad has has had a lot of work uh, most recently with some of his educational efforts on nitrogen and in water and its Im impact on uh, uh, water resources as well as crop production and so so kind of interesting Jeff now you've kind of moved more into the arena of uh, uh what would you say, artificial drainage and nutrient management, kind of the intersect of those two worlds? Yeah, most definitely. Uh, and a lot of that is an artifact of my, of my graduate work uh, from when I, when I left, uh, 
Well, while I was still in, in Stevens Point, I had a really awesome experience to be able to work for the Forest Service out in the uh, in the Bighorn Mountains and did some soil survey work out there and then actually did some uh, some wetland soils work out there while I was there. And that, uh, that experience actually led me out to uh, Oregon where I went to Oregon State and, and worked, uh, worked on my master's degree out there uh, working uh, in the area of soil physics really related to soil water uh, types of questions related to water quality uh, in the eastern part of Oregon actually in dryland wheat production. And uh, interestingly enough, I was actually recruited to come to the University of Minnesota by Michael Russell uh, one of our colleagues from, from the ARS who's uh, retired and probably enjoying retirement. Maybe he's listening to the broadcast today. But uh, I got recruited by Michael. Uh, I, at the same time, I was also recruited down at North Carolina State on the, on the East Coast and uh, made the decision to, uh, to go all the way east. And, and that's actually where uh, I got a lot of my, my background in drainage, actually. So I, I took courses in, uh, in our, our soil science department that we had there, but also in ag engineering. And I worked under one of the greats of, of drainage, uh, modern-day greats, uh, Wayne Skaggs down there. And um, really didn't realize at the time when I, when I came to Minnesota that, that that drainage experience was really going to be where my career would sort of take off, to be honest with you. I, I looked at it as, uh, you know, coursework and things that kind of built up my, my background and understanding, but really didn't realize until I got here that that, that was going to be a major, major portion of, of the work I do uh, just because, you know, here in, in the upper Midwest, Minnesota, you know, eastern South Dakota, Missouri, Iowa, you know, heavily tiled rain, so... So what systems were you working on then in North Carolina with regards to the, the drainage and, well, and whatnot? Well, it, it's, it's actually really interesting, uh, and I don't know if, if Brad, this actually kind of jumps us back a little bit even to our Stevens Point days, but there was another fellow uh, uh, that was going to school there at the same time, uh, also ended up becoming a soil scientist, got a PhD actually at Wisconsin, Chris Bry. Um, so we ended up... Uh, Chris and I ended up uh, working on similar projects uh, related to soils, and it turned out that they weren't really in drained landscapes anyway. So, so what we both were looking at uh, was preferential flow, and we took two different approaches. Chris did some really awesome work in Wisconsin with some in-ground lysimeters, uh, and at the time, our approach was to uh, to use, uh, you know, coring technology. So we would take these large monoliths out of the ground and, and we were looking at different landscape positions uh, and trying to uh, understand uh, the sort of the topographic sequence and the, the soils that developed in those areas and look at the leaching potential. Um, of course, uh, some of our earlier conversation uh, that we had, uh, I guess, before we kind of came online on the broadcast was, was about some of, uh, some of the weather that's going to be occurring. And uh, in North Carolina, of course, we had hurricanes. And so, you know, you might get uh, 8, 10, 12 inches of water. And so the, the hydraulics and the, the precipitation patterns were vastly different down there in the behavior. But, um, yeah, I, I worked most of my, my graduate work on preferential flow uh, and trying to look at that. And I remember when I came here to the university to interview, uh, 
I, I was asked a question by John Baker. So, of course, this is 24 plus years ago, and I remember the question because John said, well, you know, Jeff, up here in Minnesota, we have some preferential flow paths too, uh, and they're called surface intakes. And he's like, so what, how do you solve that problem? And I said, well, uh, you know, I, I'm used to dealing with, uh, you know, pores and cracks in the soil that are, that are, you know, less than six inches in diameter. So I said, I, at this point in time, I have no idea how I would answer that question and, you know, try to solve some of that problem. Of course, you know, since I've been here, we'd, we've also worked a little bit on some of that project and that type of a question too. So, um, well, preferential flow is, is played a role in, in a lot of different systems. I'm thinking what the Lake Erie, Oh, yeah, uh, some of the issues going on there with, with yeah, phosphorus that, and whatnot. That, that that is an amazing situation and a very very unique problem uh, in in northwest Ohio. Uh, they have it's it's an old lake bed, not unlike the Red River of the North that we have here in Minnesota. So. Uh, Similar soils in terms of the high clay content, heavy soils. Of course, climate's different, but uh, but definitely some similar situations where you can get preferential flow paths developing, and then that transport of phosphorus or, or nitrogen. But you know, obviously, in the case of Lake Erie, uh, preferential flow of phosphorus, and a lot of things that that. Uh, you know, I, I learned from from my graduate work is, is a lot of times when people think about preferential flow, they they end up thinking about you know, earthworms. I mean, that's the thing that comes to a lot of people's minds. Oh, there's a lot of earthworms out there. Well, there's actually you know biopores, which might be you know from earthworms, or there might be pores from you know old dead roots, so they might be you know cylindrical in shape. But uh, in those heavy soils, what we really end up seeing, and this was the case down in North Carolina as well, there are high clay content soils down there that that a lot of these are structural pores, uh, you know, in between the, the the aggregates that are in the ground. So as you get wetting and drying and freezing and thawing, you know, you get these structural aggregates that form, and then you 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 can tend to get a lot of preferential flow around those, and that's actually a lot of what happens in in the uh, the Maumee uh, River Basin there as you kind of head into uh, um, Lake Erie and their phosphorus problem. And and actually, I you know I, I I'm I'm gonna preempt your next question by just saying, well, one of the one of the things that we we click quickly learned uh, based on some of the work that I had done here in Minnesota uh, was people would often say, well, phosphorus doesn't leach. We don't have phosphorus in our tile drainage. Um, and we do see it uh, from a preferential flow standpoint, but we also see it in, in mass flow conditions like we would see nitrate that uh, even though the concentrations tend to be really, really quite small, less than a hundred micrograms per liter most of the time, um, it still moves, and uh, we we know from the obviously the experience in, in Lake Erie that uh, uh, if you get the right combination of circumstances, it can turn into a bad problem. And they use a lot of Lake Erie, I think, not only for recreation but for some drinking water as well. So that creates a bigger problem for them. You know, actually, uh, Jeff, uh, you you didn't necessarily preempt my question because the direction <laughs> I was going to go was related to the whole concept of soil health right now, oh. that when you're talking uh, preferential flow related to pores associated with soil aggregates, uh, that's pretty fascinating because you know one of the concepts of soil health would be to 
see much smaller aggregates, uh, you know, granular soil structure or something of that sort. Uh, uh, and, and that would make the water's path much more tortuous, uh, which, which is, doesn't mean torture. It means it has to move farther to get uh, to where it's going, which would uh, slow it down and so forth. Uh, so there, there's some nice interaction uh, with that whole area, too, with some of the current soil health work that's going on. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, we we have. Uh, it's one of the interesting things that I, I believe, especially uh, you know, at least from the soil science perspective and a water perspective, I kind of feel like it's an underrepresented area in the soil health world, right? A lot of people talk about aggregates and they they talk about sort of single um, single metric things, right? Instead of looking at interactions between sort of the aggregates, the water and the, the organic carbon that you might get from, from roots. And so I think some of the easier things have been done. And we've, we've been looking at a, a group of us from um, Wisconsin, actually, uh, and Iowa have actually been looking at, and we wrote a proposal this past year related to soil health and water. And um, you, you're kind of going right down that right path, Brad, is that uh, when you think about it, how do we how do we create more granular structure so that we have um, a lot more surface area really for those for that water once it gets in the ground to either be stored or to have a lot more contact time and slow it down. Of course, this can be a big challenge uh, where we don't have a whole lot of cropping system diversity or if we don't have various kinds of cover crops, uh, right? Because I mean, if we look at uh, and, and I could I can look out my window and see areas where we've got uh, you know alfalfa or we've had some perennial grass types of strips where we do a pit in there and, and we can see the the change in the soil structure pretty easily in a in a relatively short period of time, whereas where we've if we're just growing corn and beans. Um, it, it takes it, it, it takes a lot more effort, uh, you know. Really, probably thinking about things like no-till to to uh, to establish structure better than than uh, than we could with uh, say a, a cropping system diversity sort of an angle where maybe we're mixing in uh, corn, soybeans, some small grains, or alfalfa, and those kinds of things. Um, so as we've, I guess. To summarize what I'm saying, because I'm sort of jumping around here, a lot of what we think about in terms of the soil structure and the granular granular relationships in terms of soil health really have everything to do with the rooting structure below the ground. Um, you know that that that's where it's going to be at, and and how do we how do we create uh, conditions and systems that are going to going to be um, conducive to developing that kind of structure is going to be important, I think, in the future, especially yeah. where soil health is considered. And, and I think that's an interesting segue because I think, you know, what you're describing is sort of uh, the future of where we're going to be headed with a lot of this kind of work. Um, in the meantime, though, uh, you've been doing a lot of investigation on, on uh, you'd either call them engineering practices or edge of field practices. Uh, which one of the downfalls of those frequently is um, they don't, they aren't they aren't always functioning they they sometimes they can be bypassed and so forth where where your soil health things are working full time all the time but uh, let's let's cross over now and talk a little bit about the the kinds of practices that you've been researching investigating the last uh, for the last decade or so 
Yeah, no, that that that's that's great. You know, I, I agree. Uh, you know, the things that that, that that we just talked about, Brad, are going to be some of the futuristic things that we need to we need to be focused on. And and I, I also might want to add so that we don't uh, we don't alienate the uh, the corn and soybean farmers out there. Um, when I talk of cropping system diversity, I'm not suggesting that we do away with corn and beans, but we have to figure out, you know, how can we manage our systems better uh, or differently uh, in order to be able to do that. And I think that's all part of even thinking about, as you were talking, Brad, uh, sort of some of the edge of field uh, types of practices that, that we've been looking at. Um, I don't believe it's an either or. I think it's a both and. Uh, I really feel like when we start looking looking at infield practices, for example, cover crops and trying to think of things that could be cropping systems management, uh, cropping systems diversity are, are components of having clean water uh, and, and um, uh, some of those other aspects of it might relate to other those edge of those other edge of field practices. And so we've been we've been looking at a number of things over the years, some that are, are more conducive than others. Uh, we've looked at controlled drainage uh, and controlled drainage um, has uh, some 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 really great benefits, uh, but it also has some limitations. And those are the things that I like to really spend time thinking about is, is not just trying to sugarcoat everything and then present it that this is going to be what everybody should do, but to propose to people, here's, here's some benefits, here's some limitations. Uh, how can how can this work on your particular farm? Uh, because not every practice is going to be able to be you know adopted by everybody. If you don't have flat enough landscapes that are one percent slope or less uh, for controlled drainage, why that that's not going to work for you? Um, there are some some ways to to make things like controlled drainage work by you know when when farmers are out you know doing new installations or they're replacing old uh, tile systems with newer ones that, uh, you know, the, the, the tile contractors can do more tiling on the contour, if you will, uh, to try to make those things conducive. But when we look at things like c controlled drainage, we found in our research over the years, uh, not only here in Minnesota, but sort of some synthesis work that we've been working on lately, a group of us, that uh, there's always a water quality benefit to control drainage. We always reduce nutrient loss and we retain water in the soil profile. And from the, from the yield benefit side, uh, one of the things that we, have, we had hoped for was that we would very frequently see yield benefits from controlled drainage. And that hasn't always been the case. Um, on average, when we look across the upper Midwest, uh, we had 55 site years worth of data in the synthesis paper we're going to be publishing soon. The, the data said that if we looked at it uh, just outright, there was no statistically significant difference between the yields from controlled drainage or uh, conventional drainage, free drainage. 
So that's that's an interesting point. Where where you hypothesize that uh, additional yield, or, or where would that come from? I guess well, as yeah, as so, being a benefit. So so this is actually where where it, it it comes actually from the water that is actually stored in the profile, and and that's where when you look at just the averages over you know these fifty five site years, which uh, you know some sites had two years, some sites had twelve, but when you start looking at it, uh, it it relates to soil moisture conservation in the ground uh, because you're raising the outlet level of the the control structure so you're changing the outlet level of of the the system main uh, so you're retaining water in the profile so there's water available there so one of the uh, outcomes that we discovered from our our more intensive work was is that in modest drought periods uh, we can actually see a, a yield increase anywhere from, say, 4 to 11% for corn. Um, uh, but if we get a, a, a wetter period and the, the drainage systems are not very well managed, so <clears throat> say, for example, the, the, the water table comes up a little too high and it stays high for too long, uh, we could actually see yield depressions. Uh, and so... Uh, you know, controlled drainage again. There, there, there are limitations not just in in where it can be installed, but it, that it has to be actively managed, and it can produce yield benefits in in moderately dry conditions. And so, uh, we 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 um, we need to be thinking. You know, and I hope that you know it's it's not a dirty word here, but we got to think about climate variability as we look into the future. That this may be a practice that we've done some work on now. Maybe it's not as popular as it might be in the future when maybe we see more dry conditions and, and we have to figure out other ways to retain water besides, you know, cover crops and, and soil health aggregation types of things. There might be some of these types of practices that could be used. Um, water quality is certainly not going to go away. Our system, because we have pipe out there, it leaks and it's imperfect and, and we're going to lose nutrient um, even when even when farmers are following best practices for nutrient management we're still going to lose some out of there inevitably so you've done uh, yeah you, you've done uh, control drainage jeff uh some of the other practices uh, uh bioreactors uh um, saturated yep. buffers uh controlled wetlands uh uh, what 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 other of these things that yeah. you've been doing investigations on? Yeah, no. So the the other things that we've been working on have have been some bioreactor work. Uh, we've we've actually um, we've actually been doing some really really innovative work in the bioreactor world, uh, where we've come up with a a different style, uh, a different version of bioreactor. So instead of having these in ground. Uh, and covered with a soil cap, um, we actually created some modular above-ground bioreactors that we could install at the outlet's tiles. And, and we, we did quite a bit of different types of research with it, with adding heat, with adding supplemental carbon, in addition to just, say, corn cobs and wood chips that were already in them. And the really, really awesome outcome of that work was that most of the time in traditional edge of field bioreactors, the residence time of water, so the hydraulic retention time, the amount of time that the water is is needing to be in the bioreactor to treat it at a, at a pretty high level of nitrogen removal, for example, um, is 24 to 48 hours. Um, with the system that we've developed, we can get it to about four hours or less. 
So that is huge because we can treat a lot more water a lot more quickly uh, and and treat it at high levels. I mean, and, and it, it, it certainly depends on the flow season, um, but we can, we can do a really, really decent job. We've also found that our, our bioreactors have been successful in, in removing phosphorus uh, during the overall year, uh, but we have seen that there are some periods of time when the bioreactors uh, do release phosphorus. Um, and we're currently trying to do some, some investigative work on that. Uh, I've got a, a grad student that I'm working with Satoshi Ishii on uh, from campus where we're looking at um, some of the microbiology that are, are occurring in, in bioreactors and in some of our drainage ditch work that we're doing uh, to see you know, who's doing what uh, in terms of cleaning up the nitrogen and the phosphorus out of these systems. Um, you know, the, the, the wetland piece that you mentioned, Brad, we've been doing that since about 2009. And, and again, you know, uh, wetlands are, are, are they're, they're heavily used, widely, broadly used in Iowa. And they're, they're very, very effective. They, uh, they can accumulate carbon, which is, which is a good thing. Uh, they're, they're very, very good at removing nitrogen. Um, they can be a, a sink for phosphorus, in, in other words, uh, holding on to the phosphorus, but they can also release phosphorus. And uh, so those are some of those things that uh, you know, we have been paying attention to. And a lot of times we've seen phosphorus releases related to vegetation that actually is just inherently present in the wetlands, for example. Um, so again, a thing, a limitation with, uh, with a wetland is, uh, and we use constructed wetlands, uh, is that, you know, you, you need to have a place to be able to put them. So if you don't have a natural area for a, for a, a wetland that you could restore on your farm uh, and you don't have any land that's conducive to, say, having a constructed wetland, um, that technology is probably not going to work for you. Um, Bioreactors uh, can work just about anywhere that you've got a, a, a tile outletted into a ditch usually. Um, obviously, uh, you know, there, there, are, there can be some limitations to those practices too. The, the most exciting thing that we've been doing and we've been working on since 2002 has been our drainage ditch work. Um, this has kind of flown under the radar. Uh, we've really tried to promote it a lot over the last few years and some of the really dramatic reductions in nitrogen and phosphorus that we see in our drainage ditches. Um, it just hasn't really gotten a lot of traction uh, and, and I'm, I'm, you know, I have some, some understanding why, uh, but uh, um, we're trying to overcome some of those perceived barriers to being able to manage water in a ditch. But basically what we've done in, in our ditch work, uh, again, we're, we're, we're looking primarily at nitrogen and phosphorus. Uh, a limitation in, in these kinds of systems is if, you know, you have to have a ditch running near your property in order to be able to manage it, right? Um, the, other, the other challenge is, is that uh, in these ditches, we want to be very, very cognizant of surface intakes and areas where sediment could be uh, a problem because we want to have systems that are are self-sustaining so that we don't accumulate a lot of sediment and create clean-out problems in the ditch right so there, there's always these challenges that you know you don't want to trade one problem for another but in our ditch work we've seen anywhere from anywhere from probably it, it ranges from year to year of course but 
in the upper 50s, 59, 60% reduction to almost 70% reduction on average over the course of a year for nitrate. And we've seen in that 30 to 45% reduction for phosphorus. Um, so... So what, what Jeff, what, sorry to interrupt you, no, but no, what, no. Are you, what are you doing in terms of uh, a water management within a ditch system? Yeah, it, Can it, you explain that to yeah, us a little I, bit? Yeah, I, I absolutely will. I, I was going to get there, so I'm glad you kind of redirected me a little bit. Otherwise, I would have got talking on something else. But what we're trying to do uh, is, is have uh, minimally invasive management of water in the ditch. And so what we're trying to create uh, in our experimental ditches is a low-grade weir, is what we call it. It's only about 12 inches tall. And what we want to do is we want to back water up just a little bit in the, in the ditch and uh, try to create a, a larger wetted perimeter uh, within the ditch so that water can uh, sort of seep into the sides of the ditch um, and be taken up by the plants or uh, interact with groundwater. Uh, also kind of look at situations where um, we can try to manage that water actively. Uh, and we're working with GEMS right now uh, on campus to come up with some, some uh, systems where we can actually use soil moisture measured in the field, some of our tile drainage uh, along the edges of the field and precipitation forecasting to actually raise and lower uh, those weirs uh, in response to perhaps impending storms um, so that we don't uh, overrun the system with too much water. So so I think most of our listeners are, are familiar with some of the nitrogen cycling processes. And so, so are you seeing mostly denitrification? Is that the kind of the goal there? Yeah. Or? Yeah, so I, I probably sound giddy like a kid going to open a Christmas present at Christmas time when I kind of chuckle here a little bit. But that's some of where we've really taken this work is we've wanted to understand uh, what the process is happening and why, why are we removing nitrogen in these ditch systems. And so when we started this back in 2002, we kind of really thought of three potential pathways of nitrate reduction, for example. So one would be that we might have interactions between cleaner groundwater coming into the ditch and the, the tile drainage or the surface runoff going through the ditch that might dilute some of the nitrate, right? So that was one potential process. Um, another uh, reduction would potentially be through some plant uptake uh, of the vegetation along the edges of the ditch. Primarily though, we were really interested in denitrification and most importantly, Ryan, we were really interested in denitrification in say late March, April and May during cold periods of time, because that's when the majority of our flow happens in these systems. And so we've actually, again, partnered up with, uh, with Satoshi Ishii and, and some of the microbiologists to start looking at and identifying uh, the microbiome in the drainage ditches, right? And trying to identify um, cold adapted denitrifying bacteria and we have been successful in doing this. And uh, Hao Wang, our, our grad student, has done a just wonderful work. In fact, he presented his, uh, some of the results of his research at the Water Resources Conference. Uh, and what, what's been really fascinating is comparing our treatment ditch to our control ditch is that we are seeing statistically significant differences in the communities of bacteria that live in them and their function. 
And the ones that are in the, the ditch that's managed with more water have more diversity uh, of, of bacteria there and more cold adapted denitrifying bacteria live there. And so it, it's partial explanation as to why we're seeing this. Now, having said that, one of the areas that we have not measured in the ditch is, is that we know that during the summer, uh, because of the nutrients there and the, the sometimes the slowness of the water, we get aquatic vegetation. So we get duckweed in there. We do get some filamentous algae growing in there. Um, not all those algae are, are bad. In fact, some of those algae are, are actually working for us to remove nutrient. And, and so this is another area that we've, we haven't explored yet, uh, but we plan to. Um, and one of the other areas that we've had be somewhat unexplainable is the reductions of phosphorus that we see out there. We know that uh, there are are some slight differences in the characteristics of both of these ditches because of the way they've been managed, but it doesn't, it doesn't all add up. We can't really come up with exactly why we see the level of phosphorus reduction that we see. So we're also thinking that there are some phosphorus absorbing uh, bacteria out there uh, or some, as they call them in, in the, uh, the wastewater treatment world. And this kind of comes back to sort of a, Brad and mine's, um, you know, sort of backgrounds uh, as undergrads that, you know, there are these phosphorus uh, absorbing or accumulating uh, bacteria that, that are used in wastewater treatment plants. And so we're trying to look at different ways that we could go in and augment these things. So we're using, we're using biostimulation or planning to use some biostimulation uh, in the, in the drainage ditches and in terms of trying to find some uh, innovative uh, ways to remove nitrogen and phosphorus higher than higher at higher levels than what we're currently doing by again minimally uh, managing the water that's out there. Yeah, I think I've heard a story from Brad about a college field trip to a water treatment facility and yeah. kind of a funny story. I won't go into those details <laughs> well, today. I, yeah, but, I don't know uh, if Jeff was on that particular <laughs> one either. But, uh, I, 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 but if it was a funny story at a wastewater treatment plant, I don't think I remember it. If, if yeah, Brent, it involved yeah. Earl Spangenberg, if you remember Earl. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember Earl. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so curiosity here, Jeff. Uh, so you said you were mentioning the project started in 2002. And I'm, I want to kind of step back to those uh, denitrifying bacteria that are, are active in the wintertime. Was that just something that naturally, like the biome or whatnot, just kind of shifted? Or did you do any kind of augmentation to, to develop that so that you could you could see the uh, denitrification happen? Yeah, no, so this, this is a really great question. And so when we started doing the work back in 2002, um, we actually didn't start managing the two systems that we have out there differently until it was about 2005. So we treated both of the ditches the same. So we'd have a baseline uh, uh, initially. Now you have to keep in mind that, you know, obviously there's there's more to it than what you know meets the eye because I, I've kind of glossed over some of the details. But when we originally built these ditches. Uh, there, there was essentially a, a grass waterway there. So we actually had to build br two brand new ditches. And early on, uh, because we had basically that first year afterwards, we were establishing vegetation. We had bare soil out there. Our nitrate removal was absolutely horrible. 
the very first year after building. So, um, you know, you think about a brand new ditch or maybe a clean out, uh, there, it's not going to have the same capacity to remove nutrients as one that's been established for two, three, four, five, 20 years. Okay. So we looked at the fact that initially there was very little carbon natural carbon in the system you know not something that we added but natural carbon uh, and and then as we watch the ditch system mature over time uh, we have actually seen it, particularly in the ditch that is our control ditch um, that there's it, it, it mimics much more what it used to be when it was originally built it, it, there's not a lot of organic material dead uh, detritus if you will in there when we look at the the treatment ditch which is where we have the water behind the low grade weir we have a lot more rich organic material that's actually in that ditch and that rich organic material provides an additional source of carbon right it also provides some conducive habitat for these cold adapted denitrifiers um, and so as we've been looking at the uh, the cold adapted denitrifiers and I, I we have to be honest here I am a soil scientist not a soil microbiologist and so um, no one should think that I'm speaking smartly because I know all of this inherently. I've learned a lot of this from from how our grad student and in terms of of just our conversations as he's working on his research work for his graduate project. But what what's amazing is to to kind of drive at your question is is that these bacteria uh, that live there. Um, there there are just there's so many different varieties. I believe he told me. Uh, I might get the number slightly wrong, but I think he said he identified over 300 different types of bacteria out there, and somewhere around 100 of them were species that could do denitrification, and a smaller number were these cold-adapted ones. And and even more interesting was is that one of the things that he said was in the, the treatment ditch, he was able to find bacteria that they find that are denitrifying bacteria in glaciated regions in Alaska and Canada, right? So, so when you think about that, our, our landscape was glaciated 20 some odd thousand years ago, right? So apparently some of these denitrifying bacteria still you know, exist. Maybe they're not thriving because of the climate and, and how we're managing. But when we started looking for them in March, April, when it was cold, uh, we started finding them because they were, they were the ones that were at work at the time. And so, you know, these things are out there. Uh, they're in the environment and they're just waiting for the right conditions uh, to kind of take over and do the, do the heavy lifting. Right. So, um, you know, I, I think it's something that, you know, intuitively we would say, well, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But but at least here in Minnesota and in, in particular in a ditch, nobody's actually gone and, and actually shown that that is actually the case. Um, and so if we can find that this is the case, then it might be something that we can take advantage of. I mean, if we know that they're there, we know the conditions are right, maybe we can actually take advantage of the work they're doing and and uh, make them work a little bit harder and, and help us out in times when, you know, we, we, we think about, you know, when we think about denitrification, denitrification goes up as temperature goes up. But if we can take advantage of these, these bacteria, 
uh, and maybe exploit them. Uh, maybe that's not a great term, but exploit the bacteria in March and April uh, by managing the system a little differently and managing the bacteria. Um, maybe we can actually do a better job of reducing the load that's heading up toward, you know, the St. Paul and Minneapolis area where some of the drinking water comes from or, you know, Mankato or, or even further down river down toward the Gulf. Um, so well, it, it's certainly a good time of year to start thinking about uh, uh, nitrogen management or denitrification. I mean, if we can do that during that period of time where, where it has less impact on uh, the crop production system, you know, exactly. it's pretty much would be an ideal, ideal thing. Yep. The, the beauty of it, too, is, is that, um, you know, we, we've tried to pitch this that, you know, in Minnesota, there's... Now, there's probably more than this now, but back back in the early 2000s, the number was there was about 20,000 miles of drainage ditch in Minnesota. And I always call it 20,000 miles of opportunity, right? It's currently unmanaged for the most part. And if we could manage it, even if it was minimally managed, uh, it already exists. It's already been paid for. We don't have to build a new structure necessarily out there. We don't have to... Uh, you know, interfere with the farming operation. Uh, you know, it, it's not that we have to stick something in, in in the field. The ditch already exists, and if we if we can find minimally ways to manage the water, uh, we've we've actually been talking with some engineers, and we we need to spend some time talking with uh, a couple of the contractors, and in particular, we have to engage MinDOT, um, which I have been remiss to do, but. We don't need to think about this too hard because we think that with a sm small uh, little change in engineering around road crossings in rural areas, um, we might be actually able to, to manage drainage ditches pretty easily um, just by using the infrastructure that's already existing. Well, very interesting. Well, I think I think we covered a lot of ground today, and so uh, we'll probably not to, to cut anyone off there, but uh, I think we'll we'll kind of take a pause and maybe uh, revisit again. It sounds like we probably should take the the Gopher Coffee Shop podcast on the road this summer, Brad, and and take a trip to Lamberton and visit with some of the folks there because uh, a lot of interesting things going on and a lot to to learn about and kind of help share that with with some of the the people that listen to the podcast. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Jeff and I are going to be working on a future version of our advanced nitrogen smart, and so. Uh, might give us some opportunity to explore this a little further. We've talked a lot about the uh, uh, types of, of structures and, and uh, uh, field, field uh, conditions that Jeff has been looking at. Uh, kind of ran out of time to talk a lot about the results. Uh, so that's going to probably be the, uh, the focus on the next time we come and visit with Jeff. Yeah, well, and I want to say thanks, Jeff, for being on the show today. And uh, thanks to all our listeners out there. This has been another installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop Podcast. Mm -hmm.